But we're starting this new sermon series in 1 and 2 Samuel, looking at um, a man after God's own heart. And we're drawing that from 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where we're told, Your kingdom, Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And the man after God's own heart that's being talked about there is King David. Um, And King David is one of the great figures of history, a man of um, political acclaim, a great king, a man of military ability um, and great conquering power, a fine warrior, but also a writer. He wrote many of the Psalms, also a songwriter as well, a truly great man. But it's interesting that the commendation that Scripture gives him above all commendations, I suppose, arguably the thing that underpins his greatness is his heart. He has a heart after the Lord's own. And we're going to look at what that means as we ask the question, what does it mean to have a heart after the Lord's own? And how does that link to and help us to understand the foundations of David's greatness? And I suppose the relevance for us is that as we seek a life of meaning and significance, as many people do in London, there's a danger that we, we miss it um, because we focus on the wrong thing. We don't build on the right foundations. But in the truest sense of the word, a great life, that is a life that really means something, um, not necessarily a life that's written up in the lights, but a life that actually counts for something, is a life that is underpinned by having a heart after the Lord's own heart. And we're going to look at what that is. Particularly in this passage, what we see is a compare and contrast going on. We see um, the failure in Saul's life as we look at his heart, um, and then we see the kind of fruitfulness in David's life as we look at his heart. And so we're going to see um, Saul's heart, his pride, his disobedience, and the way that God rejects him. And then we're going to see, in contrast, David's heart, his humility, his trust and obedience in the Lord, and the way that the Lord empowers him. But first, as we come to this passage, the thing we need to um, deal with is the context, which I wonder if you noticed in the first three verses particularly, and maybe your brain and your heart didn't go much further than this, because it does stick a little bit like a fishbone in the throat. Let me read chapter 15 on page 285 if you shut your Bibles. And verses 1 to 3. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you, king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. But there's no way of escaping the emotional pain of these verses, and in many ways we could give a whole sermon series trying to deal with this and the questions it raises about God and questions that I'm sure are going on in your heart. And as I say, I don't have the time to deal fully with it now, but I do want to say a few things so that we can really deal with the meat of the sermon, which is about Saul and David. First, as you read this, it, it of course reads like the worst type, really, of ethnic cleansing, doesn't it? I mean, and I say the worst type because it's got that religious veneer that goes over the top of it, which seems to justify it. You know, ethnic cleansing done in the name of the Lord is anything worse than that. And isn't that what's going on here? And then isn't Saul kind of disciplined or rejected by God because he refuses to go along with it? So what kind of a God are we dealing with here? I mean, that's the type of intuitive questions it raises. Well, look, let me try and say a few things about that. First of all, please notice that I don't think this is ethnic cleansing. I mean, ethnic cleansing is the attempt to create ethnically homogenous groups or areas by the extermination or forcible displacement of all persons who don't belong to that particular ethnicity or tribe or race. 
But that's not what's going on here, because look at verse 6. We get in verse 6, the Canaanites, who are not Israelites, are told to move away so that they don't get destroyed. So this is an indiscriminate wiping out of everybody who's not Israelites. This is a very specific thing focused on the Amalekites. You say, okay, right, so it's not ethnic cleansing, but isn't this just then some horrendous racist grudge or maybe some feud where Israel come out, you know, and decide that they're what, going to, you know, go with vengeance? And doesn't the Lord say, don't to do that, instead to turn the other cheek? So what's going on here? Well, notice verse 2, the reason for this. It's very clearly given. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, what he's talking about there is that after Israel had, um, had got out of Egypt, delivered by the Lord's mighty hand, when they were at their weakest and their most vulnerable, and they're trying to go through the desert, they have no threat to the Amalekites at all. They're not trying to enter the land of the Amalekites at all. But nonetheless, the Amalekites proactively come out to attack them at their weakest moment. You can read about that in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. Not only that, but the racial hatred instigated from the Amalekites against the Israelites continues. So in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, in Judges chapter 6, in Judges chapter 10, the Amalekites again and again attack Israel unprovoked. And here, because Saul doesn't actually do what Samuel says and doesn't completely destroy them, if you read on in the book, uh, sorry, in the Old Testament, then when you come to Esther, you come across a person called Haman who is described as an Agagite or an Amalekite. And he is a very powerful person, and he tries to completely exterminate all Jews by decree in the book of Esther, which is one of the great tension points of the book of Esther. In other words, this is about, verse 2, the Lord punishing the Amalekites for the way that they have set themselves up, not only against Israel as an ethnic entity, but against God because they are God's people. And by implication, therefore, against God's purposes, because God has promised to bless all the nations of the earth through Israel. That's what's at stake here. Well, you say, okay, so this is the divine judgment of God, but isn't that just awful and painful? Yeah, it is. Look, the emotionally healthy response to something like this, even if you start to see that this is God's explicit sanction, and that is the only justification for this, by the way, is not to kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, God's sovereign and they deserved it. The emotional healthy response to any form of judgment is to be deeply grieved about it. Does not the Lord Jesus Christ, when he mourns over Jerusalem, why? Because judgment is coming. He pronounces the judgment, but he at the same time grieves and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would gather you into my arms, but you would not. He's deeply cut up about the fact, but it still doesn't deny the rightness of the judgment. Or what about the Lord in the Old Testament just before the flood? God says, I'm grieved at what I see in the sinfulness of humanity's heart, but the judgment of the flood is still right. Or the Apostle Paul, the great apostle, what does he say about judgment? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because of the judgment that's coming on his own people who reject God. In other words, to see the rightness of judgment is not to disengage from the emotional pain of it. And it should be the same today. I mean, we have law courts that meet out some pretty hefty judgments, life imprisonment, for example. And in some extreme situations, it's right for those judgments. But we don't celebrate that. We know that it's right, but we mourn that. We mourn that that's happened in the first place. We mourn that the crime's been committed. That's emotionally healthy. So if you are struggling with this like I do, then it just means you've got an emotionally healthy response. 
but please don't let that override the rightness of the judgment at egregious sin and the need for salvation. Look, just a few things. I'd love to chat to you afterwards. I don't expect that's everything. I certainly don't think that takes the pain away, but hopefully a few things. Let's now look at Saul, and then we'll look at David. Let's look at Saul's heart, his pride, his disobedience, and the abandoning of him by God. Chapter 15. Okay, first of all, please don't think that the reason Saul is, um, you know, is being disciplined by God here is for some principled pacifism. If you look at verse 9, you see the reason. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. I mean, this is naked greed. This is lust for possession. This is the ugliness of a human heart that wants to accumulate more and more and more. But not just that, there's a deeper sin that lies behind that, which I think is pride. Look at verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. In other words, behind Saul's greed is the deeper sin, the greater sin of pride. Interestingly, if we flick back to 1 Samuel 13, where Saul first sins, what he does there is he does something that only Samuel, as a prophet and priest, is allowed to do, that is to offer sacrifices. But Saul elevates himself and assumes arrogantly and proudly that he can do that, and that is the first great sin that he commits. So the two great sins he committed are both linked to pride. That's what's going on in his heart. Now, this lifts the veil on Saul's heart, his pride. And why is pride so bad? Well, C.S. Lewis said this about pride memorably in a BBC-transmitted radio show back in 1942 when he was answering the question, what is the greatest sin? He said this, There is one vice of which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he or she sees it as someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular, and no fault which we are more conscious of, sorry, unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying pride isn't just a sin, pride is the sin. Pride isn't just a problem. Pride is the sin that leads to all other problems. It's the sin that underpins all other sins. It's like the sin that opens the lid on the box, Pandora's box, that lets all sin out into the world. It's the foundational sin, which is why it's so often ascribed to the devil. Why, does, why is it that? Well, two reasons. First of all, a proud person is never satisfied until they are better than everyone else. A proud person is never satisfied until they are better than everyone else. So a vain person may care far too much about their looks, but a proud person will only be satisfied when everyone is looking at them. It has to be all about them. A greedy person may care too much about money or possessions, but a proud person has to have more money, more possessions, more of everything than anybody else, because the pride is insatiable. An insecure person, for example, might struggle with criticism, might get defensive, and push back a little bit. But a proud person has to be immune from critique, can't bear to be criticized. How dare you talk to me that way, says the proud heart. There is something about pride that sucks all of the oxygen out of the room. 
you know it when you've been in a room with someone who's proud. It's like there's no space for anybody else. There's no air to breathe because they absorb it all. The insatiable hunger of the proud heart. A proud person is never satisfied until they're better than everyone else. Secondly, a proud person won't obey God because they put themselves in the place of God. Notice when Samuel confronts Saul in verse 19, he focuses on the key issue. Why did you not obey the Lord? Verse 20, Saul replies, but I did obey the Lord. That's a lie. And then verse 22, sorry, verse 23, Samuel delivers the judgment. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, what's the link between disobeying God and pride? Well, because pride is self-exaltation, pride thinks that it knows better than God. Pride hears what God says, but says, well, look, God hasn't got the monopoly on wisdom, and I'm a, an adult human being. I can make the call. I can decide whether or not I'm going to follow that. I can decide which of God's laws are right and which are wrong. I'm wise enough. I'm mature enough. I'm knowledgeable enough to know right. Aren't I the arbiter of truth? particularly in a post-truth age. So pride elevates itself to actually sit in judgment above God, which, by the way, if you go back and look at the Garden of Eden, is exactly what happens with Adam and Eve. They set themselves up as being the arbiters of the moral rules in the universe. They sit above God, elevate themselves to decree what they should and shouldn't follow. And so we do today as well. In the same way today, increasingly, the world around us encourages us to be autonomous, to make your decisions. You decide whether or not it's right to follow God's word, right? Follow some bits, but if you don't like other bits, you don't have to follow it. I mean, it used to be a slur to say of a person that they think the world revolves around them. But now millions, if not billions of pounds are invested in every year in social media and the apps and the devices and the operating systems that you have on your phones or tablets to literally give you that experience of the world revolving around you. We've made one of the great vices one of the supreme technological virtues, your browser experience, your cookies to tell you how you want it, so that it's all tailored to you, so your little technological world does revolve around you. And guess what? That does not produce well-formed, morally balanced people, because <laughs> it just reinforces pride. And so in that context, when God has the temerity to say to you, trust me, obey me, do what I say, we think, who is he to speak to that, me that way? I decide. As a Western culture, we decide. We sit above him, don't we? I mean, who, do we think, who does he think he is? The pride, the disobedience. But look at the cautionary tale of Saul. Look at the pain and devastation in his life by living this way. And notice, finally, how God abandons him. Verse 26. Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Are there ever more chilling words spoken in the whole of Scripture? And we're told in chapter 16, verse 14, that the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Here's the thing. Because pride says, it's all about me, I decide. The heart of a proud person is so full of themselves, there is no space for God. There's no room for God in their decision-making. It's all about them. They squeeze God out of it, and God says eventually, all right, fine. I mean, you are a morally autonomous agent. You get to make the decisions, right? You're an adult. That's part of what it means to be an adult. You live by your decisions, so, so live by it. Then you don't want me in your life? 
God says, I will give you over to the just judgment for that. And what could be more just than saying, fine, you don't want me, I will depart from you. And the world applauds and says, freedom, freedom, well done, you're a modern person, a modern human being. But we should read the cautionary tales of Saul. As the words of the eagles in Desperado put it, freedom, freedom, that's just people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone without others and without God. And God departs from Saul. And it's tragic to look over the coming chapters at Saul's demise, as he kind of loses his mind, loses people's respect for him, loses everything as the Lord departs from him, because everything that was good was given from the Lord. And so when the Lord departs, everything that's good departs as well. It's a chilling picture of reality of living without God. So look at Saul and read the cautionary tale. Beware the ugliness of pride. Beware the attraction of sitting yourself above God's word and beware the ultimate judgment of God saying, fine, you don't want me, I'll leave. But instead, more positively, let's look at David's heart, his humility, his obedience, and ultimately his empowering by God in chapter 16. First, do you notice in chapter 16 just how hard God has to work with Samuel to help Samuel to look at the inside and not look at the outside. I mean, it's borderline comical, right? He's ultimately said to Samuel that he's sending him someone after his own heart back in chapter 13. So he sends Samuel off with Samuel already knowing the failures of Saul when he got overly caught up in appearance. And so he comes, and you'd think that Samuel would know. More than that, Samuel is known as a seer. It's a, a title that was used for prophets, which means he's got insight, divine perception, but you read this, it's borderline comical about how blind he is. I mean, first you get Eliab put up in front of him, and he thinks, verse 6, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. Why? Because he's impressive physically looking. In other words, he's still looking the outside. So God has to teach Samuel by this object lesson or this worked illustration as one by one the sons of Jesse are paraded in front of Samuel, each one looking impressive, and each one the Lord saying, not him. Stop looking at the outside. Not him. Seven times he does it. And of course, we sit here as readers, don't we? We roll our eyes and we think, oh, he's so stupid. But friends, don't you make the same mistake? Don't I? Social situation? Ah, oh, you know, she's gifted. Wow, he's, he's handsome. You know, look at the, I mean, they are impressive. All outward stuff. And you just get caught up in the hype. How many of us, when we're in a social situation, really start to get to know people's hearts rather than just their CV or their gifts? We all make this mistake. That's the point. We have to look beyond, past the hype, past the veneer, past the masks, to the heart. And we need to realize that what the Lord is really looking for is humility. Because that's the thing that stands out about David. He's a humble man. First of all, he's not even invited to the party here, is he? Because he's out in the fields tending the sheep. And not only that, but if you read on, as we're going to see next week, even after he's been anointed as king over Israel, it is remarkable. He is content to bide his time, be patient, and serve, yes, serve, the one whom the Lord has now said, I've rejected you as king, Saul. And how he speaks to Saul, do you know what he says? I am your servant. He's not, he's the king. He's just so humble. 
That's always through David's life what makes him such an attractive figure. It's his humility. It's the way he gets the common person, the way that he doesn't think of himself too highly. And the moment that he does, he falls into sin. King David at his best is a humble man. It's the humility of his heart. Now, we really need to realize what humility is and isn't. I wonder if you puzzled a little bit on chapter 16, verse 12. Since it's all about the heart and not about the outward appearance, then isn't verse 12 a little bit strange? So David was sent for and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And you're like, hang on, what was all that stuff about the heart, right? Well, we need to realize that actually to say that the Lord doesn't look, sorry, doesn't look at the outward but looks at the heart does not mean the opposite extreme, that gifts and talents and outward appearance have no value at all, right? Because that's where we go. We think Sunday school version of David and Goliath is this. David was a tiny little weedling. Goliath was a great intimidating warrior, but the Lord did a miraculous event. That's not true. I'm going to give spoilers for next week. Chapter 17, verse 34, next week. David says this, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Your servant has killed both lion and sheep. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. He's not a weedling. I mean, he just says there he's killed lions and bears. Hands up if you've done that. So he says, you're intimidated by Goliath? I've taken down bigger than him. You might say he's a bear of a man. I've actually taken down bears. You might say he's a lion. He roars like a lion. I've actually killed lions. But here's the thing. He doesn't trust in his ability. He trusts in the Lord. You see, we get the wrong idea with humility. We think that humility is false modesty. Oh, woe is me. I'm useless. I've got no gifts at all. Oh, what a humble person. No, that's not humility. You're still focused on yourself because humility, as it's been memorably said, is not thinking less of yourself, woe is me, down on yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less and think of the Lord and other people a lot more. In other words, a humble person, a truly humble person is able to narrate their gifts, but they don't trust in their gifts. They're able to say, yeah, I'm good. You know, I, I genuinely think I can take him down. I've taken down lions and bears, but I don't trust in my gifts. I trust in the Lord who gave me the gifts. You see the nuance? It's not Sunday school here. In the adult world, we need a sober realization of our gifts, but we don't trust in the gifts. That's real humility. If you can't narrate your gifts without being proud, then you're just self-loathing. And that's not humility. That's actually just inverse pride. So David is a humble person who's sober-minded about his gifts, but he does not trust in his gifts. And because he's humble, he obeys God's word and he trusts in him. Isn't it striking what he says? I've got gifts, I've killed lion and bear, but the Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me. My confidence is in the Lord, not in myself, no matter the gifts I've got. He's a humble man with a humble heart. And finally, do you see how God responds to such humility? Chapter 16, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Just as Saul's pride and disobedience leaves no room for God, so David's humble heart opens itself up to God, and God never needs a second invitation. If you will open your heart in humility to God, Trusting him and trusting his word, 
He will fill your life as he filled David with the power and the presence of his spirit that day. The American evangelist in the 19th century, D.L. Moody, was one of the great evangelists, by all accounts a very gifted speaker and a man with a deep compassion for the lost. Not an educated man, but as his fame grew, people from around the world who were pastors and evangelists would travel to conferences that he would give on how to speak and how to be an evangelist. And the story is told in one of his biographies about one night when a bunch of Europeans and particularly British pastors had gone to see him um, at a um, conference he was speaking at. And later on that night, Dial Moody was walking to his bedroom, and as he was walking along, he noticed that the um, shoes of the pastors were placed outside the room. And he asked someone, why are their shoes placed outside the room? And they said, oh, they're waiting for the servants to clean their shoes overnight. But Dial Moody realized that there were no servants in the house. And so he took it upon himself to polish the shoes of the pastors who had come to hear him speak. And the only reason this story is known is because another pastor was also going to bed a little bit late and saw him doing this, and Pausno asked him what he was doing and then helped him with it, and he told the story afterwards. D.L. Moody never told the story. That's humility, real humility, not show, not I want people to see me being humble, but the hidden work of the humble heart that is, no matter what success has happened, is never too proud to say, I'll do that. I'll clean someone's shoes. I'll serve. Well, you may be thinking, look, I long to be humble, but it's hard. How do you cultivate humility? It's often said that humility is a shy virtue. What's meant by that is the more you pursue it, the more it evades you. I mean, after all, if you kind of say, I must be humble, I need to focus on being humble, I need to focus on myself and being humble, you're ironically reinforcing pride by focusing on yourself, right? So how do you be humble? Well, you don't become humble by saying, I must be like David. Become humble by realizing that even David in humility ultimately fell into pride and sinned, which is why David points to great David's greater son, the infinitely humble one, the one who truly had, has a heart after the Lord's. The famous words in Philippians 2 of one of the earliest Christian hymns, the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you see the humility there? Jesus Christ is God, worthy of all praise and glory and honor and power, but what did he do? He, the greatest of all, became least of all. He, the one who is high and lifted up, worthy of all praise and worship, was content to trust the Father's will, and to be lowered to become a human being, to live in poverty, and to be lowered still to go to the cross, and then to be lowered still so that on the cross he experienced hell for you and I. He, the one who is robed in all splendor and majesty throughout eternity past and eternity future, willingly on the cross, was stripped naked, was subjected to abject humiliation. Notice the word. Why? For all of the ways you and I, though we're just creatures, grasp after God, seek to be like God, seek to be better than God, for all of that hideous pride in our hearts. He was rejected so that you might be accepted. He had it all stripped away so that you might be restored. 
He was cast down low so that you might be lifted up. And here's the thing. You can't be humble by saying, oh heart, be humble. But you can be humble by looking at the humble one because when you look at that, it's inherently humbling, isn't it? If you see him high and lifted up but descending to the lowest place for you, doesn't that shatter your pride? Doesn't that strip it all away? All of the bravado, all of the arrogance, all of the elbows out, squeezing out other people, all of the sucking out the oxygen from the room. It says that is so serious that Jesus had to die for that. And it breaks your heart and it breaks your pride. And out of the breaking of your heart, it opens up space. Space for the Lord to work. Space to allow other people in. Space to truly be humble. So you want to have a life of meaning and significance in its own way, in the right sense of the word, a great life. Not a life written in the stars, but a life that really counts for something. A life which the Lord esteems and one day will give the ultimate benedictum. Well done, good and faithful servant. You want that life? Renounce pride. See the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinitely humble one. Allow that to humble you and then listen and obey his word and allow him by your spirit, by his spirit, to fill your life. And that will be a life that truly endures, a life which does endure beyond the grave. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we long to be like this, but we can't do it, Lord. It's not possible but you can do it in us, both in the power of the Spirit and by the dynamic of the gospel. Help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is, the one truly after your own heart, the humble one, the one who should be high and lifted up, but the one who became lower than us for our sake. And might that break our pride and break our hearts, and might that lead to streams of living water flowing in us as we turn ourselves to you and we cry out for forgiveness. Lord, humble us, change us, we pray. We can't do it in our own strength. So do that work in us for Jesus' sake. Amen.